0: Good morning to you all. As he mentioned, I am from the D.C. area. Uh, I am a Redskins fan, a disgruntled one. Um, so because my team is not going to be in the Super Bowl this afternoon, I have an especially long sermon. <laughs> but don't be worried. You should be able to get watch some of it by at least halftime, I think. Uh, um. Actually, the passage that we're going through today is a passage that deserves a great deal of time, and uh, I'm a little bit concerned. I I began preaching this at my flock last Sunday morning, uh, last Sunday evening, and I made it through verse two. Uh, But I've I've done my best to uh, scale things down a little bit and combine things so that uh, we can enjoy the full scope of Psalm 110. So you can take your Bible and open to that portion of Scripture, and in a moment we'll read it together and uh, then enjoy God's Word uh, as we continue our worship. Uh, To set up this passage, we need to talk about chairs. When you have little kids, you know that they go through different stages of chairs that they need. There's the the booster seat that's needed in in the car. There's the uh, high chair that's needed at the table. And then there's little boosters that go in other seats. And it's not long before your kids want to sit in big people's chairs, even if it's not comfortable for them. They don't realize how silly they look with their feet dangling down like that. You know, and After a while, they realize it's uncomfortable, and then they decide that they, that's what they, they want to be in a chair their own size. Most chairs for adults are built so that your feet can rest securely on the ground, or if it's an elevated chair like a stool, the best stools have got a footrest. And We don't think about this all that often, but if, if you're in an elevated chair, you have to have some place to put your feet, or it's uncomfortable and you look silly. I mean, think about lifeguard chairs; they've got a place they can put their feet. They're not sitting there dangling their legs the whole time. Uh, the line judge in the tennis game—they've got uh, an elevated chair. Well, the grandest chair, kind of chair of all, is a throne. And in the ancient Near East. It was very common for thrones to be quite elevated. You see a picture up there of the throne of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is his traveling throne, not the one that was in his throne room. And even this traveling throne is elevated so much that he needs to have a footrest. And I mention that because the passage that we're looking at today in Psalm 110 gives us a prophecy about the enthronement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage describes the dignity of Messiah, partly in terms of what is under his feet. In your handout or in your bulletin, you have a, a set of notes, and I'm going to have you add just a one tiny thing to the statement that's at the top. The statement at the top summarizes this passage that says that David foresees Messiah enthroned as a divine king and royal priest who will triumph as a holy warrior. Now, here's something I want you to add to that. So that we might be filled with holy longing and allegiance to Christ. So that we might be filled with holy longing and allegiance to Christ. This psalm is very significant and in some ways difficult to preach, so what I'm going to do is... Uh, have an extended introduction to the psalm, and then after that we'll have an exposition. But before we do either of those, let's go to verse 1, and we'll read through the entirety of the psalm. The superscription tells us it is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, as we read that together, there were some verses that were perhaps very familiar to you. Uh, The majority of them, verses that are not so familiar and not often recited. I'd like us to think firstly about the significance of Psalm 110. Why would I choose a passage like this to preach to you as a guest speaker uh, today? Psalm 110, of course, contains one of the most beloved verses in the Bible. Um, We often think of Isaiah 53 as the passage that the New Testament quotes the most. And in a sense, that's true. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that is most quoted in the New Testament, But the verse that is most quoted from the Old in the New is in this psalm. Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted at least a dozen times in the New Testament. And there are many more allusions where there are parts of phrases that are used. It is quoted by Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and the author of the book of Hebrews. You'll find it quoted in Matthew, and Mark, and Acts, and Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and Hebrews, and Revelation. It is a verse of tremendous significance, and almost every direct, I would say every direct quote and almost every allusion that's found in the New Testament is applied directly to Christ. The New Testament universally sees Psalm 110 as being a messianic prophecy, one of the chief ones in all the Old Testament. Jesus insisted, for instance, that when David speaks of my Lord, that David is not referring to himself. Even Peter mentions this in Acts 2. Let me read for you just a few verses from Acts 2, 33 to 36. In his preaching, Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended in heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel be certain Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think one reason that the New Testament writers and the early church found Psalm 110 so potent and powerful as an explanation of the relationship of Jesus to the Father is that it, it, by prophecy, shows us how Christ can be exalted and elevated, but not in a way that at all detracts from the glory of the Father. There is no sense in which the exaltation of our Lord Jesus in heaven has bumped the Father off of the throne. Because within this passage we see that Yahweh speaks to Adonai and elevates him, but in no way is Yahweh's glory threatened. Jesus' ascension to the throne was not in any sense a takeover. And that's very different from many of the pagan ideas about how gods ascended to power and bumped off the other, and then these divine wars supposedly took place. Now, in addition to verse 1 being quoted so many times in the New Testament, verse 4 is quoted eight times by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, from the middle of chapter 4 of Hebrews to the end of chapter 7, there's this extensive discussion of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And much of that discussion is based off of Psalm 110, verse 4. The author is laboring to say that Jesus is our high priest, a better high priest than anything that Judaism had seen before. In fact, it is a high priest that was prophesied within the Old Testament Scriptures itself. And so from that verse, the New Testament teaches that Jesus has a position that's greater than David and all the angels of heaven, that even though there were enemies who would reject Messiah, that God would exalt him, that Messiah is both Savior and intercessor, that Messiah is seated, having completed his work, and that Messiah is waiting the final surrender of his enemies. These are all extremely important concepts that are birthed forth out of Psalm 110. So our our study this morning is not going to be a how-to sermon. Um, It's not going to be some string of practical advice for daily Christian living per se. It's really a pack a a passage that is focused on the glory of Christ. This isn't a how to message, it's a how much message. How much glory Christ is worthy of, how much allegiance that is due to him, how much longing we should have for him to come again. So it's an important, it's a significant passage, and also by way of introduction, it, it has a great deal of complexity. Um, The New Testament clearly explains to us verses 1 and 4 as prophecies about Christ. But in the other verses, there are some very difficult things. And perhaps even as we read it together, your your mind was itching with questions. Like, well, what is this he will drink by the brook by the wayside? And what's all this, the womb of the dawn and the dew and his youth? And and who are these kings who are going to be smashed to pieces? There, There are difficulties with, both the Hebrew text and with the translation, especially of verse 3, which is considered by many to be the hardest verse in the book of Psalms to translate. And depending on what Bible you might have in your lap, it's possible you have a different rendering uh, of that verse. And there have been different approaches to verse 3 for millennia. Uh, There were questions about who is speaking at times. It's obvious sometimes David is speaking, and other times... Yahweh is speaking, but it's not always easy to say when Yahweh stops and David starts again. And that makes it complex in creating an outline and doing a study of it. Then there's questions about structure. How how does this psalm break apart? Many study Bibles, you might have one in your lap that says this, says that the psalm breaks up into two parts. That there's a statement of Yahweh in verse 1. And another statement of Yahweh in verse 4. So verse 1 to 3 talks about king, Jesus' kingly ministry. And verses 4 to 7 speak of his priestly ministry. It's a very common outline. But as you look at, I think, verses 5, 6, and 7, that, that falls apart. Because verses 5, 6, and 7 don't say anything about his priestly ministry. And this is just what I've given you. It's just a small list of the interpretive issues that Psalm 110 presents. Over the years, I've preached through over 100 of the psalms at my church And I've put off this one for a long time (laughs) because I knew it had a lot of complexities like that. But I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews uh, in our congregation, and Hebrews quotes this so much that it was time now to deal with it. So it's a joy for me to share with you some things that I've gleaned from it. Michael Wilcock has said that to the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles, but to the early church, it was full of treasures. So, as much as we might wonder about some of the statements that we're going to read and and study, let's not lose the larger picture of the things that the New Testament emphasizes. One last point of introduction, the authorship of Psalm 110. The superscription, the little title over verse 1 says, a Psalm of David. Now, our English Bibles, I think, have done us a disservice because in the Hebrew Bible, that is the beginning of verse 1. Those little titles that tell you who wrote it and who it was dedicated to are part of the inspired text. They are not editions by the translators. Now, my Bible also has a, another title above it. It says, The Lord Gives Dominion to the King, and that's in italics, and that's been added by the publishers. Uh, but those little titles of authorship and dedication and notes about the instruments to be used, those are part of sacred scripture. And that's very important when it comes to Psalm 110 because if we didn't have that, Uh, Or if it read differently, we might assume that this was a psalm written uh, about David. Maybe David wrote it so that other people could sing his praise. In fact, that viewpoint is common amongst those who deny the Davidic authorship uh, or who who deny that it's really a prophecy. But the New Testament makes a tremendous point about David David both being the author and secondly, David is not speaking about himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 42 and following. He says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. David is not speaking of himself. He has a Lord who he is prophesying about. We can't be sure when in David's life he wrote this psalm. It was certainly after he overtook the city of Jerusalem and God had made a covenant with him that you'll read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, But shortly after that great Davidic covenant was made, that covenant in which God told David that he would use him and his seed to bring about the fullness of the promises that had been made in the millennia before, shortly after that, David begins to disobey and decline. And as you read the rest of the stories in the book of Samuel, it becomes very obvious that David is not going to be the one himself who will fulfill all of those promises. Perhaps it is towards the end of his life, in that time of transition when Solomon is about to come to the throne. You you might remember that when Solomon came to the throne, David was very uneasy about him taking ascendancy. He could even see in Solomon's youth that he was not going to be the fulfillment of those promises. Maybe it was in those later years that he understood the glory that had been promised him would come through a greater son, one who would not only be David's son, but in some sense, mysterious to him, perhaps, that son of his would actually be his Lord. Well, that brings us to the main part of our study, an exposition of Psalm 110. And what I'd like to do is take this psalm and break it up into three parts Verses 1 and 2 describe the kingly nature of Messiah. Verses 3 and 4 speak of the priestly ministry of Messiah. And verses 5 through 7 speak of Messiah as a victor. David foresees Messiah as a divine king and royal priest who will triumph as a holy warrior. And he does all this so that we would be filled with a holy longing and allegiance to Christ. So, in verses 1 and 2, we see that David's Lord will be enthroned as a divine king. David's Lord will be enthroned as a divine king. And notice in verse 1, the divine characters who are in session. And when I say in session, I'm talking about uh, the royalty is in court. It begins after the superscription by saying, The Lord says to my Lord. In the Hebrew Bible, this is an abrupt way for a psalm to begin. It is literally the pronouncement of Yahweh to my Lord. In the prophets, it would be translated something like, Thus says the Lord to my Lord. Look very closely in your English Bible at the words for Lord. The the first one, the Lord, notice that that first entry, that first instance, all of the letters are capitalized. This is a tool from the translators to help you know that the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh. This is the divine name. Traditionally, it's been rendered as a title, not as a name. So it is Yahweh said to my Lord. Now notice that the spelling there, or the font there, is different. Lord has a capital L, but everything else are small letters. And when you see that in the Old Testament... That's an indicator that the Hebrew word behind it is something like Adonai. And that's the case here. Adonai is a word for master or Lord. Yahweh said to my master, is what David says. Yahweh said to my master. And then there's a pronouncement made right after that. David says he has a master. And that master is distinct in some way from Yahweh. And yet he is also a divine person because he is seated in this heavenly courtroom. As I shared earlier, Jesus uses this verse to expound on his deity. It is a bit cryptic, isn't it? But what this psalm says in cryptic poetry, the gospel, the New Testament makes clear through the narratives of the gospel and the apostolic preaching. This Lord of David was, in fact, Jesus Messiah. He was Lord of David, not only in a temporal way, but really an eternal way. The Messiah would not be only Son of Man and a Son of David, but in a unique way, Son of God. Psalm 110 is uh, the crown of all the Messianic Psalms. One very close to it would be Psalm 2, in which David also says, toward the end of it, that everyone must kiss the Son lest he be angry and you be turned from the way. It's fascinating in that one spot there, the word son, and I'm going way off on the side, but I won't take long. But the word son in that spot is the, not a Hebrew word, it's the Aramaic word. Aramaic was a much more globally used language. And it's as if David is implying that this son of his who would ascend the throne, to whom all allegiance must go, is not only a son for Israel, he is a son for all the nations. Jesus, Messiah, is to be Lord of all. In the next phrase here in Psalm 110, we have the words of enthronement. Words of enthronement and institution in which Yahweh elevates the ascended Lord Jesus to the throne of glory. The royal honors are bestowed in verses, the rest of verse 1 through verse 2. And the first royal honor that's bestowed is Messiah's enthronement. Middle of verse 1 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, in a throne room setting, to sit at the right hand of a king was the highest of all honors, a guest who might be brought before the king. And if he was ex- extremely uh, honored, he would be, they'd bring out another chair to the right David does this for Bathsheba in one of the courtroom scenes uh, in 2 Samuel. But this kind of setting is even different from that. This is a position not of a guest being honored. This is a position of co-regency. He is seated not just on another chair, but most likely on the same chair. Now, you have an image on the screen behind you of a pharaoh who is seated seated next to his god. It was common in the ancient Near East for kings to think that when they sat on their thrones that they were actually sitting enthroned with their god and that their god had them sit to the right of them. And you see in in that image how the, uh, the pagan god has placed his right hand on the lap of the pharaoh. It may be that the imagery used in Psalm 10 is... Uh, reminiscent of these settings that would be familiar throughout the ancient Near East. Someone sitting on the right hand like this was the king's right-hand man. What he said was as good as what the king or the God said. The New Testament uses this language to teach about the current reign of King Jesus. Acts 2, Hebrews 10, he is the father's right-hand man. His reign may not be acknowledged in the earth yet, but one day heaven and earth will be one. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, these verses of enthronement indicate that not everyone is quick to yield to his lordship. Uh, Look at the end of verse. He has enemies, enemies that need to be dealt with, enemies who will ultimately be put down. It's the same kind of thing that Psalm 2 speaks about in verses 1 1 through 3, where David asks, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And of course, the response of Yahweh on the throne says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Yahweh promises His Son that He will give to Him a dominion with absolute, complete control. All His enemies will be placed under His feet. After battle scenes, uh, battles took place, it was common, uh, or not at least not uncommon for the victor, to place his foot on the neck of the defeated king or leader. In this scene, we have the enemies being brought in, as it were, into the royal courtroom and are being used as a footrest. You know, as we said earlier, an elevated throne, you have to have some place to put your feet. And the, this image here, and it is a metaphor, of course, is very striking. This metaphor was also used throughout the ancient Near East. There's a... Uh, for instance, a painting on a wall in Egypt. Do we have that? Uh, uh, that next slide is a painting of uh, from a wall in Egypt where Pharaoh is sitting on the lap of his nursemaid, and under Pharaoh's feet are nine conquered enemies. I've given you two pictures. One of them is colorful but hard to see. The other one, you can see the the heads of the. These are the nine traditional enemies of Egypt. It's obviously a metaphorical image. But it does speak powerfully. There are copies of letters from people in the land of Canaan writing to Pharaoh, and they refer to them, they're subordinate to Pharaoh, and they refer to themselves as the footstools of Pharaoh. There's another inscription from Assyria, from around the time of Isaiah. It says, Valiant men who with the support of Asher his Lord have put all lands under his feet like a footstool. This was a powerful image that people were familiar with in David's day. And the thought is that God, that Christ, will one day have absolute control. What does it mean to have enemies under your feet? It's one thing to have an enemy in hand and to wrestle them down. It's another thing to have them so subjugated you can control them by your feet. It's the image of absolute sovereignty and dominance. Christ will one day have this kind of control. We do not now see everything under his feet. There are many rebels. We were rebels, but God's grace changed us and transformed us and brought us into allegiance to King Jesus instead of being rebels against him. Today, people can willingly submit to him by faith and receive everlasting life. But if one waits in rebellion, They will submit to him one day, but not by faith. They will submit by force. And instead of entering into everlasting life, they will enter into everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So here is the enthronement envisioned in verse 1. And in verse 2, we have a prophecy. Messiah's triumph is foretold. Messiah's triumph is foretold. And here I believe David is speaking again. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Yahweh will cause your scepter, emblematic of his rule, to extend beyond just the city of Zion to really, the rest of Scripture tells us, all the world. The scepter, this royal rod, was originally these were weapons. And over time, they came to be used ceremonially as a a sign of of rule. Zion, of course, is that hill of Jerusalem where God's presence was known as he stationed himself there in the temple and the tabernacle. To have the scepter stretched forth meant that his reign would extend outward from that place. The second part of the verse, the New American Standard renders as a command and as a statement from Yahweh, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. But let me suggest that it could be translated a little bit differently. It could be translated not as a command, but as also a prophecy. You shall rule in the midst of your enemies. I think that's a better way to understand this phrase. It's a continuation of the previous statement of prophecy. You shall rule in the midst of your enemies. And there's something about that word rule that's unusual. There are a number of Hebrew words for rule. This is one of the more least used ones. It's actually an agricultural word, a word used for plowing a field, a word used for treading grapes. Tread in the midst of your enemies. It's a word of absolute dominance. And it's ironic that the previous verse spoke of his enemies being under his feet as a footstool, and here they are under his feet in yet another way. Now maybe you hear this and, and you're thinking, you know, it's... I have a a difficulty rejoicing in the thought of Christ reigning by means of conquest. Uh, The thought that there will be those who are punished. And it is true, there's a part of this that is because we, I think we intuitively know, that but for the grace of God, we would end up under His feet. But the Scripture is not at all embarrassed to play up the holiness of, of God and his absolute justice. There is a beauty to that. There is a holiness to that that we can come to appreciate as well without becoming hard-hearted towards those who are still rebels against Christ. It's also perhaps hard for us to rejoice in these verses because we don't see everything being under his feet right now. Many people this day are not gathered in the Lord's house. They're going about their own interests and some have legitimate reasons to do that and others don't care a thing about Christ. They may not be openly hostile to Him but there's no allegiance to Him. It seems the majority of the world is that way. But there is coming a day which every eye will see Him and, as we said before, every knee will bow. How how much better it is for knees to bow to him in faith and submission now. And that ought to motivate us to be busy about the work of the gospel and making it known to others. We move on to verses 3 and 4. This is the second major section of the psalm, and the imagery is going to shift, not so much quickly in verse 3, but by verse 4 it will definitely be different. I believe these verses speak about the priesthood of Jesus. This divine king will be installed as a royal priest. A royal priest. Now, I mentioned earlier verse 3 is perhaps the hardest verse in all the Psalter to translate. And let me read for you what it says literally. In fact, I think we have a a slide. This is a, a, a woodenly literal translation of the Hebrew text. Now, if any of Uh, If any of you ever take my Hebrew class, if you turn this in, you would fail because this is not the kind of translation. But it gives you a sense of the choppiness and the difficulty of the text. Your people, free willingness in the day of your strength, in the splendor of holiness, from the womb of the dawn to you, the dew of your youth. That is choppy, isn't it? Hebrew poetry is known for being choppy. It, it's part of the artistry of poetry to force you to think about the connection be word, between words and phrases. Even some of our English poetry does this. We put words out of order and kind of funny structure and to the point you have to really meditate on it a bit to, to, to discover what it's saying. Well, this verse is certainly that way. It's, it's that way on steroids. And over the millennia, really, going back at least to 200, 400 B.C., there have been different ways of translating this verse, very different ways. I, I don't want to go into all of the ins and outs of that today. I'm going to give you what I think is the, the best way to understand it. But there are, it is dense with images and metaphors, and it is a very forceful piece of cryptic poetry. I'm not absolutely certain about the interpretation I'm going to present to you, but I do think it fits best. I think verse 3 fits better with verse 4 than with verse 2. There are some connections between verse 3 and 4. For instance, verse 3 mentions the splendor of holiness or holy array, which could be describing priestly garments. And verse 4 clearly mentions a priest. Verse 3 mentions the womb of the dawn and dew and youth, all emblems of newness and life. And verse 4 says that this royal priest is a priest forever. Those are some connections, I think, that bind together verses 3 and 4. So consider with me in verse 3 the appealing beauty of his holiness. The appealing beauty of his holiness. He has a people who are eager to follow him, we're told. Your people... will volunteer volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's good to hear because in verses 1 and 2, all we heard about were enemies. But there are not only enemies who surround Jesus. There are people who love him, who if as I think we understand these verses, who have not only a king that they follow, but a priest that they follow. One who has a sanctifying influence upon them and makes them righteous instead of rebels. These are not subjugated, defeated people. These are people who freely serve him in love and devotion. What they do in their service is not defined in the psalm, and it's really unimportant because the focus is upon the king, not upon his servants. But it implies that they will gladly do whatever he wants them to do. Now, that's a good word for you and me, to think about our position with King Jesus, that we should want to gladly do whatever he wants us to do, whatever his word commands us to do, whatever in his sovereignty opens up for us to do, that we would gladly follow our king and priest. It says now, this is speaking futuristically, in the day of your power they will gladly volunteer. Uh, We've not yet seen the fullness of our king's power. We've seen bright, burning glimpses of it in the Scripture. We've known some of the reality of that power in our lives. The power of his resurrection is at work in us through the gospel. But we've not yet seen the day of his power. Our holy king is enthroned in heaven now, but his global dominion has not yet been seen. So there's a sense in which this verse, and really the whole psalm, ought to create within us a longing to see the day of His power. How often do you long for the coming of Christ? You know, the younger we are, the more we have short-term goals that we long for. We long to finish college or finish that graduate degree and get that new job and get that house to find your wife or your husband to have your children. We, we have these, these things we long for, and those are fine so long as we keep them in their place, but there ought to be an overriding hope that is above all those things. The New Testament makes so much about hope, the confident expectation that when King Jesus comes, everything that's been promised to us will be brought to pass. Do you long for it? Do you look for it? And I don't mean trying to figure out when the rapture is going to happen. I mean being enraptured with the thought of what it will be like when he comes. The phrases that follow here in the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 are what really directs us to the thought that we're not only waiting for king to return, but he is a king priest who will return. Jesus is not only our monarch, he's also our mediator. Look at the second part of verse 3. Not only does he have a people who are eager to follow him, but he is filled full of holy vigor to lead them. He is filled full of holy vigor to lead them. And now we come into the very difficult phrases of the verse. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And uh, these words are choppy. The images are complex. We have holy garments and early morning and dew and youth. The New American Standard takes an interpretive decision here, and it says, uh, your youth are to you. Did you notice that? Maybe you have a different version. Your youth are to you. And it's understanding that the youth is referring to the young men that will follow Jesus, or the young people. But in the Hebrew text, the word youth is actually singular. And I think in this place it is still referring to Messiah. If we can put up the slide five. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which wins the award for the most names in its title. Um, But in some cases, they have renderings that I prefer. And this is a good one. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth, belongs to you and you're thinking "Well, oh, that clarifies it <laughs> that's still it's still a difficult phrase isn't it it is the phrase holy array or holy splendor is literally splendors of holiness it could refer and i think it does refer to the holy garments of a priest's vestments it's used that way elsewhere in the old testament messiah is clothed in layers of holiness outfitted for this priestly work, which the next verse will speak about. From the womb of the dawn is certainly flowery poetry. and What's meant is the, the womb is the dawn. The dawn gives birth to a new day. It gives birth to new life. It gives birth. One of the things it gives birth to is dew. You don't find dew in the middle of the day. You find it in the morning. It's as if it's been birthed forth by the dawn. The dew is an emblem of freshness, newness, life. It's used many times in the Old Testament to describe vitality and blessing and sometimes even everlasting life. Messiah's youth or youthful life is like the dew burst forth in the morning. Interestingly, rabbis that later on uh, spoke about what something they called the dew of resurrection. That when the resurrection came, it would be as if there was a, a dew that had burned birth forth, a new life. And I think actually that certainly the next verse does imply, or at least make room for the resurrection of Jesus. Because he is a priest, we'll read forever. His youth is like the dew. He is forever full of vigor and life, and nothing will ever diminish His prowess and His glory. So verse 4, we move in now to the kingly authority of His priesthood. The kingly authority of His priesthood. This verse, as I mentioned earlier, is quoted Four times, I'm sorry, eight times in the book of Hebrews. It's really right in the heart of the book of Hebrews. Some would say the most important part of the book of Hebrews is an exposition of this verse. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is something that really doesn't get as much airtime in our thinking and perhaps our singing as it should. We we speak a lot about the sacrificial work of Jesus, where He Himself is the sacrifice. But do we think enough and deeply enough about the priestly ministry of Jesus? This verse is one which speaks about that. He was installed by the most sacred oath." Look at the beginning of verse four. "The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind." Jesus' installation as a priest is not based on his genealogy. He is not a priest because he's a descendant of Levi. He's not. He couldn't be a priest in that sense he is ascended to the priesthood by the direct installment of yahweh yahweh by sovereign oath has declared that he will be forever accepted as his priest and there will be no changing of his mind for god to take an oath is the most solemn of things An oath always implies, sometimes it's stated explicitly, sometimes it's only implied, and here it's implied. An oath always implies that if I do not keep what I have said to do, if I am false to my word, then may curses fall upon me. God has secured the priestly ministry of Jesus with the most absolute certainty possible. It is unconditional and irrevocable, And that's good news for us. It means that Jesus will forever be our priest. Forever our intercessor. Forever he will be our man in heaven. That's good news. He was installed by the most sacred oath and he was ordained to a most unique priesthood. This next part of verse 4 contains a phrase that maybe caused you to trip up a bit. Who, who in the world is Melchizedek, and why should we be so excited about him? D.A. Carson has a wonderful message he preached called, Let's Get Excited About Melchizedek. <laughs> well, let me share some reasons why we should be. It's one of the most peculiar-sounding statements, but Melchizedek, though he's mentioned only briefly, there's only four verses where he shows up in Genesis 14. In fact, of those four verses, only two verses mention him a little-known character who pops in and out of the story of Abraham. Abraham was in his 80s. He had been in the Promised Land for perhaps up to a decade, and the Promised Land didn't look so promising. He, he had just got himself involved in a war. He had to go rescue his nephew, Lot, from captivity. And after chasing off these invaders, the king of Salem, an old name for Jerusalem, came out to meet him as he was on the path, and Melchizedek offers to him a blessing. I I believe Melchizedek is a Canaanite king who had a true knowledge of the one true God. He was unique, though. He was a king-priest, installed, we would assume, by the direct word of God. He pronounces a blessing on Abraham in Genesis 14, a blessing that reinforces to Abraham the promises that have been made in the previous chapters. Abraham recognizes him as God's man and has his authority, and he pays him a tithe out of the spoils that he had just won in war. Curious little character. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. We don't know who his children were, if he had any in and out. And then strangely, a thousand years later, David writes about him here. He picks up this loose string from Genesis and weaves it into the tapestry of Messiah. A thousand years later, David says that his Lord, the Messiah, would be a priest and king like Melchizedek was. You see, under the Old Testament law, a Levite could not be a king. To be king, you had to be of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So a Levite could not be a king, and a king could not be a priest under the Levitical system. It was against the law. There were kings who tried to do that, and they got themselves in huge trouble, you know, like Uzziah, who was struck with leprosy when he tried to combine those two offices. But David prophesies that there will be a new kind of priest with a new kind of ministry who will, in his own person, like Melchizedek did, bind together the offices into one person. This reference to Melchizedek generated a great deal of curiosity throughout the millennia. There are Jewish writings that have all sorts of fanciful things that they think about who Melchizedek was. And David's mentioning it again in Psalm 110, only added fire to it. And There's idea, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, he's depicted as an, an angelic figure who's going to come back with Messiah. They, they were struggling to what to do with this. And we are indebted to the book of Hebrews for spending so much time expounding on this theme and teaching us of the priestliness of Jesus. In the new era, there would be a priest. Would be supreme, a priest who was king, all in one. David was not referring to himself, but to his lord. It's possible that David saw himself, in some sense, as a Melchizedekian king. He does do some priestly activities. He he authorizes some sacrifices. Of course, he writes music, uh, he dances before the Lord, but he, he never usurps the role of the priests at the tabernacle. If David were to try to take these words from this psalm and apply them to himself, it would be somewhat like what happened when he tried to put on Saul's armor when he was a young boy. It's just too big. It's too clunky. It doesn't fit him. The only one whom these words fit is David's greater son, King Jesus. And not only is our king he is our high priest forever. And that is such good news. There is no danger of his work ever being imperiled by his mortal demise. The New Testament emphasizes in Hebrews chapter 7 that he is a priest forever by right of his indestructible life. He has conquered death and hell. There's no succession that's going to happen in that priesthood. We don't have to worry about another priest rising up in his place who is spoiled rotten like many of the Levites were. No, he is the perfect priest who has offered the perfect sacrifice for our sins and has made atonement and brought us back into union with our God. So these images of Christ as king and Christ as priest are being painted for us so we would be filled with holy longing for him to come back and holy allegiance to him in every day until then. The last section of the psalm is in verses 5 through 7. And the imagery changes yet again. In these verses, King Jesus, our King Priest Jesus, is depicted as a victor, a warrior. This King Priest will triumph as a holy warrior. Now, we have a problem when we come to verse 5, an interpretive problem. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. Look at the spelling of Lord in your Bible. Uh, If you've got a good printed edition, you'll notice that there's a capital L, but all small case letters after that. And that means that the Hebrew word behind this word is Adonai. Adonai. At your right hand. So the question here is Is David speaking to Messiah and saying to Messiah that the Lord, and Adonai is used of Yahweh sometimes, is he saying that Messiah, as you go forth into battle, Yahweh is with you? Adonai, the Lord, the Master, is with you and he will help you conquer your foes. Or, as I take it, is David now praying to Yahweh? And saying, Yahweh, this master who is at your right hand, he will go forth and do valiantly. And I'm inclined to take that latter view. And that makes, in some ways, it makes it easier because by the end of the psalm, almost everyone agrees that it is, it is the Messiah who lifts up his head in victory. So understanding it this way is, is easier um, we see in verses 5 and 6 that he will thoroughly vanquish all his foes. He'll thoroughly vanquish all his foes. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Now in verse 5, there is no verb is in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text rarely uses the verb is or am or was, it has to be inferred. And the question is, should it be here or not? And I would suggest to you that it should not be in this case, that it should be read something like this. The Lord who is at your right hand. The Lord, Adonai, enthroned at your right hand. Referring back to verse 1. The Lord, Adonai, at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. The Lord who was enthroned at Yahweh's throne will go into battle and win the day and end the night of wrong. He will shatter his enemies. A graphic term for smiting and more than that, beating to pieces. The phrase chief men, as the New American Standard has it, could be understood differently as well. Uh, In verse 6, he will shatter the chief men. Uh, literally, he will shatter the head over all the earth. It's singular, head, and it's a debate amongst translators of whether we should understand it as uh, collective. You know, sometimes uh, we talk; people will talk about being a menace and as all oh, their uh, their beaten head, and by that they mean more than one, you know, many people's heads. But it's possible that he's referring here not just to the kings of the previous verse but to the ultimate head of all opposition to Christ. This might be, and I'm not certain, but it might be an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3, where there was a prophecy given to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. It may be. It may be that that's what this verse implies. It also sets up a contrast. In verse 7, we're told that Messiah will lift up his head triumph. These prophecies are entirely eschatological. They are alluding to things at the end of the age. In verses 1 through 4, there's a mixture of prophecies. Some of them have to do with Jesus' earthly ministry, especially verse 4, or things that took place in his ascension. But now these verses are taking us completely into the future era. They describe poetically what will take place at Armageddon things which sound frightful and unpleasant, and there may likely be a part of us which cringes when we read these words to think that our, some of our fellow men may come under judgment such as this. But think of these passages, as the Scripture does, as celebrating the ultimate triumph of good over evil, the triumph of God over the devil. There is a beauty in this conquest. There is glory to God. God receives glory to His name even in judgment because when God judges, He is in fact being faithful to His character. Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus has taken our judgment for us. What a blessed joy that is. This should give us confidence in God's plan. There is a glorious end coming in which evil will finally and forever be put down. This is the promise of the ages. And we have so much evil in this day and age. It's good that we're we're people of the gospel, that we're out about sharing the good news and the power of Christ. But even for those who refuse and reject, we know that in the end, God's glory will not be thwarted. There is a glorious kingdom coming. Verse 7 gives us one more image. And I've entitled it this way, that he will relentlessly pursue total victory. Relentlessly pursue total victory. The first half of this verse is is difficult uh, because of the image. It says, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. What is this brook and why is he drinking and what's so important about that? Let me share with you two views and I'm sort of on the fence between these two, Uh, but I picked one in the end. The first view is that this is a reference to some kind of enthronement ceremony. Uh, At the end of David's life, he prepared for Solomon to take the throne and he commanded Zadok the priest in 1 Kings uh, 1 to take Solomon to the Gihon Spring and crown him there. And that place was significant because that was the place in Jerusalem where David and his men first infiltrated the city. They climbed up this water shaft and overtook the city. And so Solomon is crowned by that brook where the city first began to fall. Could it be that he is using that imagery here to describe poetically the enthronement of Jesus over Zion? It may be. Yet another view, and this is the one where I am right now, is that this is not an enthronement image, but it's, a, again, a battle scene image where Messiah, as warrior, is pursuing his enemies to the end, and he is relentless. He prosecutes his war to the very end. He does not stop to rest. He, he doesn't need to bivouac and take care of himself and gather himself. He need only scoop up a drink on the way and keep going And it's because of that sort of relentless pursuit of victory that the verse tells us in the end, therefore he will lift up his head. An image that's used throughout the scripture as a token of total victory. You know, today, at the end of the Super Bowl, there will be a loser. Uh, I can guarantee you one of the Harbaugh's will win. But beyond that, I can't make any prophecy. Except that. There will be a winner, there will be a loser, and the losers will leave the field for the most part like that. It's a natural human response. Shame causes the face to fall, and glory and honor causes it to raise up. And this king, our king Jesus, our priest king, will win victoriously the day. That sacred head which was once wounded with a crown of thorns will forever be lifted up with everlasting glory. I long for that day. David foresees Messiah enthroned as a divine king and a royal priest who will triumph as a holy warrior so we might be filled with a holy longing and allegiance to Him. I'm going to conclude by reading a stanza from an old hymn. There's a hymn called This Is My Father's World. How many of you know that hymn? All right, a few of you. You have homework now. You need to learn this hymn. It's beautiful. The first two stanzas speak mostly about creation. Uh, I love to hear the, the the, the, uh, the carol of the birds singing and so forth and God's beauty and glory is displayed in creation. But the third stanza says this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth shall be won. Our Father, we thank you for the sure prophecies and words that have been said about David's Lord, our Lord, our King and Priest, that this servant who has come to save us will come again to rule over all. In the meantime, our Father, as we wait for that great day of His to come, we want to be faithful servants of the King. We want to be obedient to our priest. We want to cooperate with his sanctifying work within our lives. We want to follow what he tells us to do and freely do wherever he sends us, to the glory of our Christ. We want to be busy about the work of letting others know that there is a way to rightly relate to King Jesus, that they need not be rebels, that they might come to him and find the newness of life that he gives. to know him not only as a conqueror, but as a good king, a saving king who transforms from the inside out. Give us, Lord, this kind of longingness for Christ to come and a joy in making him known to others. We pray it in Christ's name.